This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Last night, we talked about the necessity of grace. And today, I'm going to try to address some of the questions that were provoked by uh, the discussion of grace and its necessity. And there was a question that was raised earlier, for example, this morning about logical versus essential distinctions. And this would be an opportunity to, uh, to revisit a question like that. So I think I, I think I will be brief, I think, and we'll, we'll take it from there. So last night I alluded to an analogy that St. Thomas proposes having to do with the favor of a king. And a king's favor we, is elicited by something good in the subject, something praiseworthy, something that's been done, some capacity for doing something good in the future. It's a response to that which exists in the subject. Grace is, is, is like and unlike that. It's like that insofar as it is, it denotes a kind of, a kind of favor. Most basically, it has to do with a state of affairs, of, of being in God's favor, of being pleasing to God. So you remember when the Holy Spirit visibly descends upon, on Jesus and, we, and the Father is heard saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And he, the Father is pleased with the Son um, in the way that God is always already eternally pleased with himself. You know, um, the Lord is a f- the font of all goodness. He's immeasurably good. Uh, he's so, so truly and ineffably good that you could enjoy him forever and he, he would never be diminished by your enjoyment. You know, there are a lot of good things that are not like that. Uh, um, yesterday I ate tacos. Tacos are good. I, when I enjoy tacos, I mean, what the enjoyment of them means is their consumption and conversion into me. <laughs> they're, they're gone. They're finite. To consume, to enjoy them is to, to take them. Um, God's not like that. God is is uh, the source of all goodness, and who's in no way diminished by our enjoyment of Him. God is pleased. The Father is pleased with the Son, because the Son is the second person of the Trinity. And, uh, and he's full of grace. He's, he is 
perfectly in God's favor. And we, as adopted children of God, are made, uh, we are encompassed within that favor. It's extended to us. It, so in that sense, it's like being in the favor of a king by proxy. It's unlike this, unlike being in the king's favor, as I described it earlier, because God is pleased with us, or in being pleased with us, God makes it so that we are really pleasing to him. His, His disposition toward us, his grace toward us, his His love for us is not a response to something already in us. It creates creates the, the goodness we have. So God's grace, being in God's favor, entails the creation of something new in the soul. It actually changes us. And... I'm talking now about grace insofar as it's a habitual gift. Okay? A gift is something denotes a causal relation. It's anything is a gift insofar as it's given by someone to some someone else. A habit is a uh, it's a category of being you know there it's a it's a way in which something's qualified all right i i shaved my beard recently because i was looking like an old old man because it's become white and the whiteness in my beard is a quality that inheres in it and if i and you you would see it plain as day um, the redness of an apple is a quality. The, the courage of uh, someone who stands for the convictions that are right and true is a quality about them. Grace is a quality at the most basic level. It's something that God gives us. And I, I won't be able now to, to spend time on spelling this out metaphysically and theologically, but it's a participated, uh, it's a participation in God's own goodness. He, you know, Jesus tells us that we must be and will be made perfect just as our heavenly father is perfect. And this happens because by grace, God changes us actually to be like him. So grace is an act, this, this is something that God puts in us in the very essence of our soul. And the soul, of course, is simple Meaning, it has no parts. Uh, but we talk about the soul ha- as having having parts, 
because it has different powers. You have intellect, you have will. There are other, there are aspects of your soul that are not subject to voluntary control. Like the, the parts that have to do with growth and decay. Um, the soul, uh, prior to having powers, having capacities uh, that uh, we specify as being the principles of action, has an essence. And that's where grace goes. And it flows from there into the soul's powers and gives rise to virtues, which are also qualities. The theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. The infused virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, and all the virtues connected with them. Those are virtues that, uh, again, flowing from grace, enable us to give order to our lives in a way that that can generate, in cooperation with God, actions that befit our status as children of God and which lead to our supernatural end. And he gives the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These two flow from grace, principally. These are habitual dispositions by which we can be made docile to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So this is what grace is, insofar as it denotes a habit, something actually in you and something that's mediated to you sacramentally, but also uh, anytime God pleases to grow you in grace. There's another sense in which we talk about grace, and that's as a kind of motion, a kind of movement. That's something that it's not so much, it's not something that endures like a quality but something but a kind of action and it falls into uh, two basic kinds that I'll discuss in a little bit those just those kinds are operative and cooperative now uh, as, as father uh, Andrew mentioned earlier the later tradition of Thomas the common the commentators as they're sometimes called uh, were, were compelled to introduce divisions beyond the ones that I'll discuss today. Uh, in fact, Thomas's own account of the divisions of grace or the different kinds of grace is rather simple. And uh, saving one distinction that I'll mention, it's, it, can be, it can be represented just you know, here in a couple pages. So, we have grace as a habit, we have grace as a motion. Thomas, I'll quote, he says, the soul of a man is moved by God to know or to will or do something. And in this respect, the effect of grace itself is not a quality, but a kind of movement in the soul. Now, 
you you think of movement principally as one thing moving from one place to another. This is just one kind of movement. It's the most evident kind of movement. It's local motion. In Latin, it's, it's you know, the movement, uh, local meaning place, well, from one place to another. That's a kind of motion. It's, it's the, and it's the motion that we study in physics. But we know that there are other kinds of motion that are related to local motion by analogy. So it might sound odd or counterintuitive to think of thought as a kind of motion, but it is. It, it's a, it is a, um, well, very clearly, say, in a chain of reasoning that moves from principles to a conclusion, you'll notice you're moving from one thing to another in some sense. Crisp, clear thoughts most evidently resemble local motion. Hazy, confused, erratic, you know, circular thoughts. Uh, well, I, they, I suppose they represent a very different kind of motion. But uh, So when Thomas is talking about the motion of the soul, he's talking about a movement of the mind. So a, a, an, and there are many of these. Um, using the mind here right now, as <clears throat> for the intellect, uh, or he's talking about movements of desire or um, effective responses of the will, love, joy, peace, things like this. And the claim here is, you know, that God actually does this. This isn't just you know, uh, uh, pious, you know, distinction making. It's not it's some kind of idle theorizing or pastime. That the 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 goal of all this is to name something that the, the scripture, as it's been understood by the church and its uh, and its traditions. Uh, attest to. God moves people. Changes people. There are two basic kinds of grace that we have to distinguish between before I talk to you about the, about the two different kinds of mo grace qua motion. All right? Now I'm going to introduce to you, a, it's just a general distinction, and then I'm going to come back to that. And for the mo most of the rest of then what I'll talk about um, have to do with the gratuitous graces. First, we have to talk about um, the division between sanctifying grace and gratuitous grace. Now, in, Father Andrew already gave you a, 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 an overview of this in response to an earlier question, so this, this will help you solidify th th these things. And, and just as a practical point, again, you know, think of this as a, like a periodic table of things you can pray for. You know, it's helpful to know, have some sense of what, it, of, of how it is that 
God works in us. And as often as we can be, become aware of how God's moving us or how we need to be moved by God or how others um, would, would benefit from being moved or, or, or transformed by God, we can pray more intelligently. And, and that's a good thing. So there's sanctifying grace on the one hand and gratuitous grace on the other. Sanctifying grace is the grace, it's the, it's the kind of habitual grace you're given that unites you to God. It makes you, it's the kind that makes you pleasing to God. It's a participation in God's own goodness. A share of it. A created share, but a share nonetheless. Now, there's a question earlier about whether this introduces division into the Godhead, and I can't remember the exact details of it. But whoever asked that question, I think it was over here. You, you could, we could, you could bring that up again, and and we can we can visit that. That's sanctifying grace, and then there's what's called gratuitous grace. Now, th- this is kind of a mouthful. Uh, and so you have the gratuitously given graces or the gratuitous graces. Nowadays, these are sometimes referred to as the charisms. Sometimes you'll hear them referred to as the gifts, though in, the, in Catholic teaching, this can introduce a confusion between what uh, what are called the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are different than the charisms. So I'm going to use the, the I'm going to use the term charisms or gratuitous graces. What are these? Here's a quote: "The other, that is the other sort of grace, is that by that whereby one man, one human being, cooperates with another in leading him to God, and this gift is called gratuitous grace, since it's bestowed on a man beyond the capability of nature." Okay, so he's going to tell you, why is it called gratuitous? Well, there's what he's, he's using the word gratuitous here as a kind of, uh, coterminously for a kind of surplus or excess. It's beyond the capability of nature and beyond the merit of the person, meaning God gives these graces to people uh, quite apart from their, you know, questions of character um, and uh, quite apart from their own limited capacities, whether that's with reference to the, just the limits of human power, of what human beings can do, or with respect to what a particular person can do. You know, I have limits that are more tightly circumscribed with respect to, say, uh, Someone was talking about lifting weights the other day. You know, um, what a human being is capable of is very different uh, than what I'm capable of. Those are two different kinds of limits. And gratuitous graces are given uh, as a kind of surplus in both respects. God doesn't give them because you're, um, you can... God thinks, 
well, you know, this person can wield this grace like a tool has the capacity to do it. That's not, that's not it. Uh, they're gratuitous in that sense. And then, uh, and then again, he, he continues, but whereas it's bestowed on a man not to justify him, but rather that he may cooperate in the justification of another, it is not called sanctifying grace. I'm not going to talk about justification other than to say what it is, is it's when God sets us in order and that order is a kind of order that obtains within us and with respect to God. So we were talking last night about the, you know, the unruly relationship that too often obtains between our thinking and our desiring, our desiring and our thinking. You know, it's a happy day when we will what we know we ought to will, right? Well, justification sets the the the, the soul in order with respect to itself, gives us a kind of, it reestablishes and by healing the soul, it reestablishes the rectitude between the powers of the soul. Okay? Now there's a kind of entropic uh, <clears throat> fallout from this, I mean, we, which is why we all are always needing to be renewed in grace. Okay? But that's what justification is. So to cooperate in the justification of another means not that you would, that you play any principal causal role in this. You see, that's impossible. Only God can, can work on a human soul. Only God can change a will. Only God can turn uh, us from our sin toward himself. You remember the story of the, of, the, of the prodigal son in the far country. He's, you know, he's lousy with mud and, and eating with the pigs. And, and something happens. And he thinks, what am I doing? I'm going home. If you were going to talk about grace, you're going to ask how, what's happening to a person when that happens, you'd say, God is converting them, literally turning them around. That's what a conversion is. You're facing one way and you turn around. Okay? Only God can do that. But a human being, human action, a human life, a community of people, a kind word, a, uh, a willingness to, to, um, to share one's faith can be the occasion for that moment of conversion in a person's life. You know? And that's part of God's wisdom. That's and it's and it's amazing that God would would call us to Himself and call 
us to be a part of others being called to himself. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful accommodation to our creatureliness. God wants to, us to save us precisely by saving us. By speaking, by speaking to us as, so that we can understand him and having us speak to others so that they can understand him. So you can participate, you can cooperate in God's saving work. You can be a cooperator. And as an aside, I'll just mention, I think my biggest problem in life is forgetting that I'm God's cooperator and not the other way around. You know, I don't know how many of your prayers involve like pleading with God to sort of take an interest in the thing that you're trying to do. Like if I could just get God's attention for a minute and, and he might see how worthy of a cause this is, then he might help me. And it's, it's not like that. It's actually, he's doing something in the world. God is all the time. And we're supposed to cooperate in whatever that is. It's like in, John chapter 5 where you know Jesus says look I just whatever the father does I do whatever I see the father doing I do that's 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 the goal that's the that's we're called to imitate him in that way to cooperate in that work that's what the gratuitous graces are for I'm going to talk about that but First, we have to make a distinction between operative and cooperative grace, and it's, it's simple. It's pretty simple. In that effect, here I'm quoting, uh, with respect to operative grace, in that effect in which our mind is moved and does not move, but in which God is the sole mover, the operation is attributed to God, and it is with reference to this that we speak of operating grace. This happens especially when the will which previously willed evil begins to will good. And thus, insofar as God moves the human mind to this act, we speak of operating grace. I mean, how odd would it be if you were undergoing cardiac surgery for you to lift up a hand and say, let me give you a hand with that. Okay? That's not what happens when you're operated on. God's doing the work and you're being worked on. And, you know, that's, this is what, the, the, what Jeremiah tells us, is that it's a kind of cardiac surgery. You get a new heart. <laughs> is it, it's Jeremiah? Or am I thinking of Ezekiel? Oh, did I mess it? Did I, I turned it around. Yeah, I knew, I, I, I knew I'd done something wrong. Yeah. Ezekiel, a new heart. <laughs> Heart of flesh. Uh, you're born again from above. You're, you're, you're giving something new. It's grace and everything that comes with it. And, and God, you know, some, I was reading Plato's Republic the other day. I'm not saying that Plato's Republic is about grace, but there is this strange moment 
and all my students were fascinated by this. You know, something comes into that cave and unties these chains and something drags this guy out of the cave and nobody knows what it is, even Plato. You know, it's, it's not a doing, it's a happening too. That's operative grace. Then there's cooperative grace that, that is subsequent to operative grace. And I, subsequent in, in a logical sense, but also in the, you know, the chronological flow of a human life. You, you, need, you, can, you can cooperate with grace just if you have been uh, the recipient of God's operative grace. What is cooperative grace? Thomas says, it's the effect in which our mind uh, both moves and is moved. The op- this operation is not only attributed to God, but also to the soul. And it is with reference to this that we speak of cooperating grace. And he gives an example. This happens when God assists us, both by strengthening our, strengthening our will interiorly, so as to attain to the act, and by granting exteriorly the capacity for acting. Operative grace is an interior movement, an interior action of God in the soul. All right? Cooperative grace involves God working in the the will and in the intellect, but it manifests exteriorly in by grace, uh, you know, action. Work in the world. And if you want a, a, a good teacher about how often uh, and in which domains of life and in what respect um, God will do this. Uh, my advice is to read St. Paul. Um, he knows that he can do nothing apart from grace. Okay. Speaking of St. Paul, he, he, uh, well, gosh, he's one of my heroes. And I don't know how long it's been since you've read the letters to the Corinthian churches, but this was a, an unruly bunch of people. You know, um, and, and this, these are churches that are full of the Holy Spirit full of grace, and also uh, prone to disorder. And Paul's pleading with them <laughs> on a number of, of occasions. But in, in the letter, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, he's, he takes an opportunity right before that passage that you, you know, that's read at all the weddings um, on love, there's, he talks about the, what are called the gratuitous graces. And they're, um, in Jerome's Vulgate, they're, they're, they're rendered as graces. Sometimes you'll read them, they'll be called gifts. Sometimes we call them charisms. But Thomas actually gives us in the Summa, believe it or not, 
the most subtle and sophisticated account of the gratuitous graces that has really ever been written. I mean, there had never been anything like it before. And um, anything that's followed in its wake has been a commentary on it. Okay? What the gratu- what he's doing in, in the Prima Secunde, and then we'll do later in the Secunda Secunde, the second part of the second part of the Summa, um, is, is he's going to give an account of those charisms that are that Paul mentions. These are things that that um, that God can give you. And in the commentary on John, the Gospel of John, when Thomas is talking about those, the living water that Jesus says will flow from your belly. St. Thomas says, that water is the charisms. And, um, and the charisms are given for the manifestation of the power of God and to manifest the unity of the body of the church. So, right, we are, a one, we are members of Christ's body. We are members, and we're different. And the way that a, the body, the, the unity of a thing is manifested is when its parts are working together. And the charisms make manifest the unity of each, each of us, Christ's body, members connected to a head from whom all the gifts, all the graces flow. Talk, and, and Father Andrew will talk about that this afternoon. What are these gratuitous graces? Well, St. Thomas uh, thinks, I th- along with many other scholastics in his day, that Paul is giving us in 1 Corinthians not an exhaustive list, but a representative list of charisms. There will be there are other there will be other kinds, of more more specific charisms. But insofar as it's an actual charism, it will it will be traced back to one of these things. So he tells us the gratuitous, the gratuitous graces are, are are ordered to this that a man may help another to be led to God. Now, no one can help in this by moving interiorly. This belongs alone to God, but exteriorly by teaching or persuading. Hence, gratuitous graces embrace whatever a man needs in order to instruct another in divine things which are above reason. Now, for this, three things are required. The fullness of knowledge of divine things, so as to be capable of teaching others. Second, uh, the capacity to, to confirm or prove what the things being said. So someone was asking about proofs last night. Otherwise, his words might have no weight. Third, he must be capable of fittingly presenting to his hearers what he knows. Let me, let me gloss each of these things before we, we have some discussion. So St. Paul mentions the grace of faith, the gift of faith. This is is, uh, somewhat confusing because we think of faith uh, as being 
a virtue. And what, and what Paul is describing here is something different than that. It's, a, it's, a, it's the gift or grace of a special, uh, an especially confirmed, grounded faith. You know, it's the kind of, it's, it's a charism that um, is exercised in the midst of calamity and trial. And you will say to someone, I know you can't see your way through this, but I, but I know that God is good in all his ways. And you can trust him. And that you're speaking there from a kind of confirmed faith that's a kind of, that's elevated over and beyond the, the faith that we're, we're given uh, as children of God. And it's for something. It's not just for you. It's actually not for you. It doesn't even, and this is what it means for it not to be sanctifying grace. It's not even what makes you pleasing in God's sight. It's not what, see, it's a grace because it's gratuitous. It's not deserved. It, it extends beyond your own limited capacity, but it's for something. There are word, there's what's called the word of wisdom. This is, uh, this is knowing this is knowing the, the things that one can, ought to confess and the, that the church does confess uh, that are traced back to the most basic articles of faith. You know, we have articles there when we recite the creed. These are, this is our faith. This is the most, in its most basic uh, formula. Okay? But there are many things that can be said uh, on the basis of scripture and reason uh, that follow from those articles. And, and God gives some of his children uh, in some in varying degrees the, uh, not just the, the knowledge of those conclusions that follow from the principles of our faith, but a capacity to, to share those conclusions to, to, to make them plain. And then we have uh, what's called the word of knowledge. This is uh, fittingly presenting to one's listeners what one knows. Uh, this is a very, you know, sometimes it's said that St. Thomas never mentions St. Dominic in his writings. Uh, first of all, that's not true. In one of the academic sermons, he mentions both St. Dominic and St. Francis. Secondly, here this is this can only this is a very um, this is a very knowing allusion to uh, Saint Dominic, who is said to in all of the early Dominican hagiographic literature to overflow with exempla. Okay, what's an example? Well, I've been giving you some examples, but an exempla, as Thomas is referring to it here. Uh, in the most general sense, is a kind of illustrative tale. You know, when, when God does things in our midst, 
you're supposed to remember those things and, sh and share them with other people. You'll never believe what happened. God brought me through a time just like this. Let me tell you how he did that. Um, um, oh, I was, I was so turned around, you, and, and this is how the Lord uh, got my attention, saved me, protected me. And, we're, and what, was, what was amazing about St. Dominic and his successor, Jordan of Saxony, and, and so many others, is that they were, they were storytellers, and they had a story for everything. They were just, they were like, and they would hunt for these. They were, they were eager and zealous for, for, for true stories of God's work in the world. And the point here is that, there, that um, God makes us into storytellers and gives what's called the word of knowledge. All right. This is pretty common, ordinary stuff, to be honest. And it's, it's, um, it makes sense that God would do this, doesn't it? Okay. Then God gives graces for the confirmation of the, of the things attested to in the teaching and the preaching and the kingdom stories that, um, that are meant to uh, leaven and, and, and lighten our pilgrim journey and to draw others into the, the mystical body of Christ. These are the grace of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, and the discernment of spirits. Now, I have to confess, I've, I've never seen, I don't know anyone personally who has worked a miracle uh, in the sense that Thomas means here. This is distinguished from the from healing. Healing's miraculous when when God heals someone uh, through the laying on of hands, uh, for example. This is miraculous, but uh, but Thomas distinguishes this from the working of miracles. Miracles are like, you know, um, like when the sun stands still, <laughs> or some okay, or when you um, when you when bread. Or is multiplied. Okay, I've I've never encountered that, but I have seen people healed miraculously, and it's super cool. <laughs> it's really amazing, and um, it happens. And God empowers uh, people at times to play a role in that. So too, God uh, gives uh, prophetic utterance, and we can I can we can say a lot more about this. Prophecy has to do, in its most uh, in its most perspicuous form, uh, with con future contingencies, but it can pertain also to the present. It's uh, it's a mode of encouragement. And then there's the discernment of spirits, it, uh, the, sometimes called the, the reading of hearts or the, the, um, the sense that, you, that someone else might be feeling a certain way. 
you know, and, the, and God will. So, so these are these are gifts, but they're they're different because they're they can come and go in a human life. Thomas thinks we can talk more about this, but these are these are these are graces, not sanctifying, but gratuitous graces. And finally, with respect to the proclamation, uh, with with the sh- with the sharing of the faith, there are uh, uh, Thomas. What Thomas refers to as tongues and the interpretation of speeches. Now he's thinking here of the actual uh, of actually speaking another language. He's not talking about uh, you know private prayer languages, speaking in tongues, things like this. But um, he knows um, because it's been testified even in his own day. There, you know. A preacher would show up, and uh, without any capacity to speak to people in the vernacular, and lo- every now and again, it, God will see fit to enable someone to speak in a language that they've never spoken before. And when this happens, this is this is a, a sign, a very clear sign of God's power and presence and love, and it happens. Again, not something I've I've seen, but. Uh, I just want to stress, you know, Thomas is not simply talking about some past season uh, in the church that has, you know, that has come and gone. Okay. So there you go. These are things to pray for. You can pray for more grace. You can trust that as often as you partake uh, in in the the sacraments of the church, that God, um, that God is giving you more grace, more habitual grace. You can trust that even if you don't, um, even if you don't see it or feel it or, or expect it or remember it, that God is, there, there is operative grace at work in your life. Things that only, that you can't, you couldn't do, that only God can do for you. And God then invites you to cooperate in the work that God's doing in the world. And Part of that cooperation is facilitated by the giving of the gratuitous graces. And you can pray for those too. And that's it. Yeah. I saw your hand first. Yep. Yeah, so operative grace is a division of sanctifying grace. All right. Thank you. The question is about what we what one would call, given the taxonomy we've laid out of of grace, what one would call um, the kind of divine help that uh, God gives people who are not uh, uh, Christians or um, who are, you know, are, are pagan. Um, not, I don't want to say that there are Christians and pagans. That's not what I'm saying. But that was that was the question. Okay. Um, so, so God, so operative grace is, div- is a division of, of sanctifying grace, and um, I left out one distinction. Uh, between provenient and subsequent grace, because and I left that out for the sake of time, but also because, as Thomas says, it's a it's a logical division, 
not an, uh, a, 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 an essential division of, of kinds, okay? So there's provenient grace, which is the grace that God first gives us, um, that first turns the will, okay? And then there's every grace beyond that is subsequent, okay? But as I was saying last night, it's just, it's evident to Thomas and um, it seems evident to me that God is so abundant in goodness that God will often help people or uh, facilitate good right action in the world. Uh, and this is not to do with God's, with sanctifying grace. It, this is just a, this is just a, a super abounding uh, uh, manifestation of God's goodness. We just, God just does this. And um, you're asking, are you, if you're asking something like, are these good things that, that, that pagans do um, independently of grace, pleasing to God in the way that um, that acts of that are, are, are ordered to charity are? The answer is no. But they are good. Does that make sense? If I might, I'm yeah. Please, yeah. You're asking, are you asking the question of um, is those acts that you witnessed, are they necessarily motivated by grace or are they just natural human acts? Is that yeah. the question? Yeah, it's like yeah. they seem to meet the qualification of beginning to grow the good. So is it necessary that any like good, admirable act, is that... Is that I see, that's I see. Grace, or is that possible no, no. It's not the case that... So... We can, by our own natural endowments, uh, weakened though, though they are by sin and its effects, do uh, some of the good proportionate to our nature. And this, and, um, you know, the fall isn't, doesn't completely eradicate um, our, the, our, our human nature or our tendency or inclination toward the, the good, the natural good that we're made to achieve. Okay. And we can do this some of the time, but, um, it, and there's no, there's no, nothing much more to say beyond it than this, that it's also the case that God can, if God w wishes to, and, and we think that God does often help people just to achieve those natural goods and um, we certainly wouldn't want to deny that God can can do that if God wishes to. Does that help? Okay. I saw I saw your hand next. Yeah, so I've had, I've had this question rattling around since last night, um, and I, I think you touched on it. Yeah. Okay. I. I need, um, I will need some help to answer this question. Um, and that, and so, but I'm going to start and we'll see how far we go. So the, the question has to do with, 
uh, created grace and divine simplicity. And it's, and it asks if grace is something created, it's a, it's creaturely in that respect. And how can it then also be participation in God if God is simple? And I think the implication is that this would seem to uh, contravene divine simplicity. It would introduce into God's divine nature uh, something short of uniformity. Is that right? Sure. Uh, in God. Ah, yeah. Yeah, right. And so, you know, there's a big knockdown, drag out fight between the Eastern theologians and Western theologians on on this question. And, and there's quite a lot of work being done. It's, it's um, maybe in the last 10 years, especially on divinization in Aquinas. I'm not one of the scholars who who's, who's contributed to that, that literature. But here's what I can say. Yes, according to Thomas, grace is something created. Uh, it's a, it is an accidental quality in the soul. Okay? So it's, it's, yes, it's there. It's made. It's real. It's not, um, it's not just a, a, a logical postulate. Um, Andrew, do you have anything you want to Yeah. I see. Um, I would like to try to answer the question without uh, speaking to those specific examples first, and then if you if we have time, I'll I'll try to speak to those examples because we, examples are are great. We but we also have to we have we have to give ourselves thick examples where all the circumstances are are laid out in order to to pronounce on these things. So let me just say, I'm not one of those who thinks there's something like a, anonymous Christians, or um, I'm not. And, and, and when I said that last night, pardon me, the, did, I, did I repeat the question? The question is about, the question is about, sorry. If you're listening to this, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, okay, all right. In that case, um, here we go. So the question is about uh, the extent to which someone can be the unknowing recipient of grace while, uh, re- while knowingly rejecting the uh, natural law and or unknowingly reject the natural law. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a moral theologian and I, Again, we, I have to pay attention to circumstances, and so I, we, I need to know a lot more about any particular case, but here's what I can say very generally with confidence. First of all, uh, when, I was, when I was talking about being the unknowing recipient of grace last night, I was talking about subsequent grace, the grace that's subsequent to the first grace that God works in us operatively, in our justification um, and by sanctifying us. So what I was trying to emphasize is that that your growth in grace uh, is, c- 
cannot be tracked by your conscious awareness of your own sanctity or of good of happy feelings about um, about um, what's about what's going on in the mass. And I mean, there, there's there's a lot of um, there's a I, w- I just want to say most of the work that God does in us is um, operatively is um, is in no way dependent on our um, our conscious awareness of it. Okay, it's hidden in that sense. Um, so, it, and this makes a lot of sense just because you know uh, we're kind of hidden from ourselves anyway. I mean, we don't perfectly know ourselves, so we can't always see what God's doing. Um, but I no, I I, I don't. Yes, God's mysteriously at work in the lives of people. And it's very difficult to say, isn't it, when God first begins to turn someone toward himself? I mean, look, go read Augustine's Confessions. You know, uh, when, did, when did his conversion start? Well, he, he can't figure it out. He, he's like, he's, you know, he basically has to begin with um, a stylized version of his earliest memories. Uh, so, yes, God, God is at work, and and it's not for me to say when God begins working in someone's life um, and preparing them for sanctifying grace. But um, I I do not think that it's very likely that someone is um, that God is working operatively in sanctifying grace. Um, in the life of someone who is knowingly um, rejecting at that moment the 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 truth about God or um, or creation insofar as it can be known by human reason. All right. So thank you, Dr. Idle.